today's global gaming marketplace, your players want to pay how they want, when they want, and where they want. Accepting localized forms of payments and keeping up with what's trending is key to growing your gaming business and to finding new untapped markets. That's where Exola Payments comes in. With just one simple integration, you'll be connected to over 700 localized preferred payment methods on a global scale including bank cards, digital wallets, mobile payments, cash kiosks, gift cards, special offers, and more. Plus, with Exola acting as your merchant of record, they assume the risk of cost of complex VATs, sales taxes, laws, and regulations. Leave every transaction to the experts while you focus on retaining and expanding your audience. You can get started today. Just head over to exola.pro slash paystation or look for the link in the description of this episode. Exola Payments, it's what your gaming business needs to succeed. Switching mediation providers might seem like a pain in the ass, but it doesn't have to be. If you're thinking of making the transition from Mopub to IronSource, we've got you covered. First, we've created a dedicated tool that removes the manual work when migrating to IronSource mediation. Second, we'll be holding workshops with IronSource experts where you can have all your migration needs taken care of. And if you want to do it yourself, we also have technical documentation for migrating to IronSource mediation in our Knowledge Center. To learn more about these initiatives and begin monetizing with IronSource today, head to www.is.com forward slash migrate. That's www.is.com forward slash migrate. This podcast is brought to you by Google for Games. It takes more than a collection of tools to help you bring your gaming vision to life. With cross-platform solutions that give you access to billions of potential players around the world, Google is your partner to create great games, connect with players, and scale your business. Visit g.co slash Google for Games or go to the link in the podcast description below. And if you ask me, Google for Games is the destination to learn more about game solutions and latest research and insights from Google's gaming teams to help you achieve your goals. If you're not driving or working out while listening to this podcast, I really suggest you fire up that browser and check out Google for Games. All right, welcome to Twig 187. Uh, this week, we have the two Eric's and Adam. Um, what are we talking about this week? <laughs> Saudi Arabia, um, always good, always interesting. <laughs> we're talking about uh, Diablo Immortals and the hit pieces on it. And I've got a whole bunch of updates um, from the PC console space. But Eric, you wanted to apologize? No, no, or, no, or, no, no, no. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I, I'm just assuming that at the beginning of every episode, you have to apologize. <laughs> yeah, no. First of all, <laughs> what do you have to apologize for this week? <laughs> yeah, I, there, there's so many. The list is so long. I don't even know where to begin. No. Um, first of all, we have the uh, biggest basketball tournament in the year, uh, Coca-Cola Classic, coming up in Anaheim next week, or this Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, so we'll see how we do. It is stacked with teams that are absolutely amazing. So it, it is going to be a challenge, but uh, we'll see how, how, how far we can go. Um, the, uh, just so you know, Sneaker Steel is the favored team. They're like a fucking super team from all over uh, the West Coast uh, that brings people together to play on these fucking tournaments and they're just too much. But anyway, all right, that's, that's not important. Okay, what is important? So 
I have like a kind of a correction addition to my whole thesis around the uh, the uh, unraveling of the mobile game market. Um, you know, I clearly have been very, 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 very focused on the Apple. There are unnecessary privacy changes based upon you know their their, their marketing vehicles and their marketing machine. Um, and so what I haven't really been doing is looking at the bigger picture um, related to the you know the macro environment. Um, and again. I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. One of the best things about my job is that I talk to very, very smart people, right? And some of these smart people uh, help me with my insights, right? So the, my, my opinions are informed to some degree, right? So the one guy reached out, which I will keep his name uh, uh, to protect the innocent, but uh, he basically suggested I should look at these macro issues related to the pandemic as, as a reason for some of these changes in, in the overall market. Um, and more specifically, he basically said, look at how much money each of the governments have spent uh, for pandemic relief um, and correlate that with the mobile revenue upticks and downticks that we're seeing currently. And so, you know, pulled back a bit <laughs> and, uh, and, and looked at that. Right. And so part of my problem is I have like many axioms within gaming. And one of those is that uh, this is recession proof. Right. That gaming generally is recession proof. So a lot of these changes on the macro level, I don't really consider as all that important when it comes to gaming, because time and time again, every time there's a big impact to the overall economy, gaming is not impacted at all. It happened in 2000 and it definitely happened in 2008, in which 2009, and 2010 were growth years for gaming, despite the fucking you know, Ragnarok that was um, you know, the, the, the crisis then. Um, and again, in 2000, the Wii and P PS2 era were huge too. So that that big correction didn't affect. So when the pandemic happened, I, I assumed that this would just come and go, right? And it, it kind of did, right? Particularly for for, uh, for mobile, you could see it, or console and mobile, it kind of just came and went. Um, but but I think my assumptions were a little bit, um, um, sorry, my assumptions on console definitely happened, right? Where we're just seeing this kind of downturn right now, but ultimately when we see new hardware, we're going to see an uptick over the next two or three years. And I think, I think that'll play out, right? Ultimately, we did see a big uptick in, in, in people that were playing and spending during, um, COVID, but, but, but ultimately it's, it's tied to the, uh, you know, hardware cycles, not really tied to like economic cycles, but what I think I didn't make didn't understand is that mobile in general is much more broader market. It's not the consoles, right? And I think it did, the macroeconomic factors did have an impact on mobile and you can actually see it in the data, right? And what you can see is that during the times in which money was being just given out to everybody for no, for no particular reason, depending on how, <laughs> where you are politically, Revenues just started going through the moon and you could see huge upticks of both revenue, but also RPI, right? And, 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 and MAUs during that time period. But now we've come down to a much lower level right now. And so you can actually see in different countries, the amount of money that was given correlate to the amount of growth that you saw. And now the sudden amount of declines that you're seeing now. And so it is really hard to tease this out because the, basically all the all the money that was being given ended at the exact same time that IDFA was removed and Apple started doing its egregious behavior, right? So it's really, really hard to tease out. But over the next 12 to 18 months, we will actually be able to tease it out much better and understand what part was macro and what part was Apple's, Apple's issues. So 
That is what I want to clarify. I'm sure that didn't make any sense to anybody. But what I wanted, fundamentally, there is a macro issue as well as a IDFA issue. Both those things are impacting the business as we see it probably for the next two or three years. We'll try to figure out and tease out which is which. That's what I all wanted to say. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. I have, I have some thoughts here just to piggyback. So, sure. um, yeah, I mean, obviously, there's a macro impact. There's a bunch of things um, colliding, right? A bunch of forces colliding, some of which are countervailing, some of which amplify each other. Uh, my sense is we're a big part of this is macro. Um, but the question, like I just posted this, this Twitter thread yesterday and I kind of resurrected an old article that I wrote early pandemic when I thought we were going to be facing like a depression. Right. And the question I asked is, does mobile gaming behave like console gaming, PC gaming did in 2008? Cause we didn't, we don't know. Right. Cause mobile gaming wasn't, uh, you know, a scaled industry at that point The the app store was only launched in 2008. Right. And my hypothesis is no, that it doesn't, right? So it isn't counter-cyclical like traditional gaming is because what do you do in a recession when you got less cash, you got less disposable income, you cut the big expenditure items and you find substitutes for them. So instead of going on a date night that costs 300 bucks or 500 bucks or whatever, you buy, you buy a PC game and 60 bucks and you play that, right? Do you do the same thing with IAPs, right? What's the substitute? If I'm on the bus and I'm like, you know, impulse buy 99 cents, <laughs> uh, is there a substitute for that? My sense is no. And the argument I made, and some people made fun of me when I published the original article, we'll see what, how, it, how it pans out, is that IAPs are kind of like a luxury good. And when you think about luxury good, you probably think Louis bag. You probably think Birkin bag. You probably think Porsche. But that's not actually the, what a luxury good is. It doesn't mean just expensive thing. It means that you spend more of it. Uh, you spend more on luxury. Like a luxury good is something that captures more of your money when your income goes up disproportionately. So my income goes up 2%. My expenditure on luxury goods go up, goes up 5%, right? Well, on the flip side, when your income goes down, that's the thing that you, you cut. Luxury goods get cut to a higher uh, degree than like other items, especially like necessity goods, right? And so the question is, when, if my income drops 2%, do I just stop buying IAPs altogether? Do I, stop, do I buy 2% fewer IAPs? Or do I just say no more IAPs? Right. And that's the question. And like, we'll see what happens. But my sense is mobile games or like call them in-app purchases in mobile games, just separate market than from mobile games, which is free. Right. Free is a good substitute. Good. Right. Free games, substitute good. IAPs are a specific product within free games. How do those behave in a recession? My sense is they don't behave like tr uh, AAA PC console games. They, they behave more like what you'd traditionally consider to be a luxury good. All right. Well, I will try to, I'm going to throw another analogy out there that like in-app purchases is more like heroin. <laughs> so it's like, even during a recession, you're still buying that heroin, dude. You're addicted to that shit, right? So I, that, that's kind of my assumption, right? On, on, a, on an absurd level. But, um, but I may be wrong. And, and I think when we look at this, we, we can't look at, you know, the 99 cent purchase. Yeah, yeah. We're talking about the whale right? guy. Like that's the... Yeah, exactly. This is we're talking about where does the majority of the revenue come from in mobile? It's going to be from these top two spenders. So are they going to get squeezed? And it might not go to zero, right? Obviously, whales aren't going to all of a sudden say, I'm not going to spend at all on these games. But will they cut their budget in half, right? Those 4X spenders, are they going to be spending a thousand bucks a week anymore? Or are they going to cut that back to 500? And then what is the sort of socioeconomic status of those people during a recession, right? Right. Uh, I have there's there's a lot of <laughs> underbaking because there might be well, people that are just in a higher tier yeah, that I, I, can still spend a thousand bucks a week because they they 
they have not been impacted by this recession in the same way. Right. Yeah. And so like the, the yeah, the majority of the big spenders are the ones that probably have the still have the money to spend, but 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 we'll see. Like I look, I mean the data is really, really clear, you know, that that it did have a huge impact, like all this money that was slushing around, right, during uh the pandemic, which um but now that we're post-pandemic, over the next two years, we'll see what the impact is. You know, and, and it was time and money, right? Like right, it was yeah. the, right. The, and stuck at home. That was his point. He was looking at MAUs, which I don't believe on Central Tower, to be honest. But but let let's assume that they went from like sixty million gamers to core games to like eighty million during the pandemic, and now it's back down to sixty million. Right. Um, the question is, does that sixty million continue to stay around and either spend more money or whatever? And and I think you'll be able to tease out whether or not the pen, the uh, IDFA is having a bigger impact than than the, the macro shit. Well, it's just it's a so I've got a I've got like a four part series that I am, am finishing, but it's about we're facing a mobile winter, right? For those reasons, like we you know like whatever you could say, okay, there's a big impact, and we could parse out what ATT contributes to that and what the general macro contributes to that, but it really doesn't matter. In combination, it's very significant, right? And I think we're facing like a mobile winter. Right, as a result of the combination of those things, and it's going to be, it's going to be tough to navigate. Yeah, and just to be clear, I still do believe the console generation is completely independent of any type of macro recession shit. I still think that this is the best. This is going to be the best cycle ever for video games, and that console is going to be fine. Right, um, I am more worried about mobile and free to play. I guess more uh, more broadly, I suppose, um, outside of mobile, but. Not really, but anyway, okay, moving on. Mr. Adam. Um, yeah, so I have just a whole bunch of updates and I'm assuming you guys are just gonna kind of drop in because we all have kind of feedback on these games. Um, it was a big week for news for PC console. Um, Summer Game Fest uh, happened um, and as Eric predicted, it's pretty boring. <laughs> I watched it. Um, there really isn't much to talk about from that presentation. Yeah. Um, only thing was like, they're remaking the remake of Last of Us One. What? See that? Why is that? Why is that a thing? And Sony brings it out like it's some big revelation. It's like, dude, this game has been around for. Look at the difference, dude. dude <laughs> Sony, fuck off. Make some games, seriously, Jesus. Like, it, I would have waited a bit, but I don't know. Anyways, it was just funny because it just fueled a whole bunch of gamer memes for the week. Yeah, which I appreciate. I always get a chuckle from those. Um, big so, news so, around so, Call right, Sorry, to put a more yeah. finer point on this is like, look, I don't mind Last of Us coming out remake on next gen and make it look as beautiful as possible. But this is not something to showcase for yep. for, for this type of an event. Like it, it, it's irrelevant to the majority of the owners of, of the console. They've all played it before, right? Every single person that watched it. Isn't it event. actually free with ps5 i don't know because it was like it was in the ps plus it's it's just like you you know you got nothing to talk about when you're bringing this shit up (laughs) that's all i'm saying sony okay make it make make it rain dude make some fucking game make it rain (laughs) 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 all right all right next next up uh next one call of duty can i take Um, this one yeah all right yeah go so call of duty they dropped the trailer there's like a qr code when you load up warzone uh you scan the qr code go to youtube Looks awesome. I'm really yeah. excited about this. The last, the last, um, the World War II, the last World War II 
uh, chapter, whatever, edition, uh, entry into the franchise. That's, I don't want to say it sucked. Like, I played through the single player. But it was, we've done that before, right? They had the World War II. They had Call of Duty World War II. Like, we've done it. Like, and it was, it, they tried to. But now it's, now it's fine when it's, like, the um, fifth modern warfare. Yeah, they tried, to, they, 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 tried to, they tried to make it narrative-driven, which doesn't work in shooter games. Uh, anyway, this looks awesome. What do you mean? What do you mean by narrative-driven and shooter game? So they basically like you. There were like four characters that you know were part of this this whatever special special yeah, ops, yeah, yeah. and you ended up you know you started out as one of them, right? And then you you all yeah. they forced you to alternate across right. them, and then they they made you play Battlefield One, right? And but they made you play through the backstory of every single one. It was so boring, and oh, like you know you're <laughs> playing as a little kid, and like I don't want to do that. I want to just. Fight Nazis. If it's a World War II game, let me fight Nazis. Right? What are you doing? Don't take me back to the child. Anyway, uh, so this one looks great. Um, I'm really excited about it. I always love playing the single-player versions of this. I find it, like, really relaxing, actually. Um, but this one looks awesome. And, you know, it, it looks like they're returning to just a standard, like, you know, SEAL Team 6 has to save the world <laughs> format. That's what you want. You don't want narrative-driven games when you're playing a shooter. I'm telling you, it's not even about the narrative, but it's just really about the theme, right? World right. War II, World War One, just are not not appealing themes. The worst is like Vietnam. Vietnam was horrible. Right? Yeah, that was and that was entry that was before. A, so they went Vietnam, yeah, World War II. Like, come on. Yeah, because Vietnam. It is funny that the the Vietnam War now, like Black Ops, performs better than the World War II shooters. But if you talk about this like ten years ago, right. fifteen years ago, it was all World right. War II. Yeah, right? right. No, no, that that is true. That is true. That played back then, but nowadays it's about modern war, right. modern guns, modern weapons, modern tanks. Exactly, dude. You don't want to be playing, you know, playing with a musket for fuck's sake. Right? <laughs> yeah. and, there's like, and there's like this, like modern war, maybe plus five years that you yeah. get. Yeah. Like, as soon as you get right. to plus plus twenty, whoa, two futures. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so <laughs> that's that's one of my other axioms, right? Which I was going to describe earlier was one of my axioms is that, uh, you know. Fantasy is always better than sci-fi right. 99% of the time. Yeah. And that like, you know, things like Avatar and, and, and Transformers are terrible licenses. But the truth is that <laughs> modern to modern future for shooters is much better than sci-fi. And then it's much better than going too far back in the past. Right. right? And so it's like, like these are the tropes of, of, of game design that everyone should know by almost by definition. Yeah. And don't ever, don't ever make a steampunk game ever. No. That's yeah, like no, that's rule. Steam, steam, steampunk or cyberpunk steampunk? or both. Any kind of punk. Anything around punks. no punks. What? Steampunk <laughs> in particular is like is yeah. death. It is death. What? That's why these games never do well, right? Like right. Anyway. Well, what was that? What was that recent game? It was like open world based in London in the year like 2030 or something. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's exactly what I'm talking like, about. The, Totally what, blanking on it, but you know what sucks Bethesda. is like in twenty thirty. It was like a, it was it was an open world game based in London at some point in like the kind of kind of near term future, but like ten years out. Um, I don't remember what it's called, but like it was awesome. The gameplay was awesome, but I just couldn't. Oh, Watch Dogs. Watch Dogs. Yes. Yep. I just couldn't. Yeah. I couldn't. I couldn't get absorbed into this steampunk version of London. If we want to do London, let's do current London. That's awesome, right? And you can have current tools, current tech. Uh, the other what the, where I did get excited though was the um, oh man I'm blanking again my memory's bad today it was the uh, 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 it wasn't oh, man it was the Ubisoft uh, series where you're like a thief what am I thinking about uh, Assassin's, Assassin's Creed. Creed that was based they had one based in London in like the 19th century yeah. that was very cool 
Yes, yeah, yeah, that was very cool. Yep, but yep. but no, I don't want to play London 2030 with it's just like futuristic buildings and stuff and taxis that fly or whatever. I don't want to do that. Let's do current day London. That's awesome. <laughs> anyway. Yep. Anyways, um, so this one's built by Infinity Ward, obviously, um, which is great to see. I think quality level is going to take a big step up this year. Um, and it'll be really interesting to see what their Warzone integration will be at launch, um, just because Warzone, like obviously this has now gone full circle, full circle. Warzone came out as an add-on to Modern Warfare 1 in this cycle. Um, next news, Diablo 4 um, is announced to be coming out in 2023. So Diablo 4 was announced in the Xbox showcase. Um, it looks dark, gritty, beautiful as a Diablo game. They've shown um, gameplay before, but this was a, a pretty big close-up on it. Um, my personal preference here, I could actually barely see what was going on on the screen. I don't know if you guys had that feeling when you looked at the gameplay for Diablo. Um, it's just very, very dark. Like it's gone so far in the opposite direction of like the neon explosions that Diablo 3 was. Um, that it's very raw and very like modern, which is nice, but it's just very difficult to see. Um, they've also come out and said that it won't monetize like Immortals because obviously they're not <laughs> going to do that. Um, and they had to kind of deal with that backlash, but still. Um, but that instead it will monetize through cosmetics and ongoing story content beats. Um, I'm going to speculate here, but I'm speculating that Diablo 4 will probably take a lot of models from Destiny 2 and try to be a live service built around kind of like meaty yearly expansions um, with kind of seasonal activity cycles, driving that ongoing engagement. Um, just seems this way by the way that they're talking and, and kind of the modes that they're talking about. Um, the advantage of this model is that it's player friendly. Like they're just, they're, they probably won't get backlash. Um, it should fuel plenty of engagement, um, feel more like an MMO over time. Um, because Diablo 3, like, while it's always been held up as this, like, amazing, endlessly repeatable game, it actually isn't really by today's standards, right? Like, if they didn't really add anything to it post-launch other than that big expansion, a couple characters, um, and actually seeing Diablo with real content post-launch, um, will be great. I think it, it'll really showcase what, what the franchise could be doing. Yeah. The disadvantage, right, is cost. It's going to be very costly to maintain the service versus what they've done before. And also that it's very unlikely to be truly free to play. Like there's a reason why Destiny 2 um, doesn't offer the latest expansion for free, right? You come, the free version is essentially playing expansions ago. Um, it won't be the same model of, of engagement like Path of Exile or Lost Ark um, unless they see an amazing uptick in engagement and adoption to cosmetics where they're willing to kind of sell off enough of that expansions content. So the call out here is just they need a lot of great repeatable endgame activities to fuel that loot system um, season over season to keep this interesting. Because um, I believe Destiny really learned this the hard way. <laughs> to be devil's advocate here, dude, this is just another Diablo game, which is fucking fine. Like, I, this game is going to be amazing and I'm going to play it, but like, they're not innovating on anything new on the business model, right? This is an expansion with season passes, right? Expand, sorry, yeah, season like passes. Destiny, so Destiny 3 had one expansion, right? Right. Launched like years after post-launch. Right. So the, the player base kind of spiked at the beginning. Everybody got pissed because of the auction house. Right. They left. They came back at Reaper Souls and then right. kind of came back down again, right? Because they didn't add anything. There was the seasonal content, but that was 
only for people that were willing to reset their character and were motivated by cosmetics. Actually doing a yearly cadence of story beats or fuck? something. But how do you know that that's going to happen? Right? I mean, that's, you know, well, they said that they're going to be doing story expansions. They said they'll be doing more. You know, first of all, well, okay. All right. And so I am speculating, I, right? This is not. I, I just want to be clear on this point. That's all I really want from Diablo as a player. I just want exactly what you're describing. But in terms of like the innovation and bringing Diablo to like a software as a service type level, like that's not it, right? That's not it at all, right? That's not, that's not helping, you know, you know, build out a software as a service by doing the same strategy they've been doing for the last forever and just not executing well against it, you know? So anyway, you know, this is not like Lost Ark or Path of Exile, which is actually try to innovate and, and do different things on the business model side of the game. They're, they're basically, again, doing the exact same thing they've always done. So fine by me, you know, but I'm, but this is a game that people are going to play and then leave, right? <laughs> it's like, yeah. it's They're not going to have the retention. Right. And so this is not a software as a service game, which I think the core guys love. So that's good. But speaking of which, now Overwatch. <laughs> yeah, Overwatch. Overwatch 2 now has been announced to be free to play and has a early access release date. So October 4th, Overwatch 2 will be launching their early access, which is essentially only the PvP mode um, from then on. Um, so my perspective on this, like, Good for them for making the switch to free-to-play. I think it was inevitable given Warzone and what they saw internally in Activision given Fortnite. Um, I think this will this will be kind of a reverse Warzone where instead of launching a free-to-play version post-launch, right, and trying to upsell the premium game, it now looks like it's a free-to-play game that eventually will have a premium game that's going to be upsell. So really, it all it all comes down to the retention of of Overwatch Two. Um, the beta, uh, from what I saw in terms of like Twitch numbers and general sentiment, public KPIs really showed kind of muted interest in Overwatch. <laughs> that it was kind of a one point one, one point two, one point five, depending on how pessimistic you are. Um, and we also just went through a fall season of shooters that really failed to reach the needed retention. So that was Halo Infinite. Battlefield and Vanguard, all really struggling with redemption. So I think this one will be one to watch. It's just the next shooter trying to go at the uh, the crown, which is Warzone, uh, Fortnite, and Apex. <laughs> Again, it's not to be cynical. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> dude, they, you're no, don't be cynical. I mean, here. look, Come on. <laughs> this, this this was not the plan, right? I just want to be saying, just to be clear here, the Overwatch Two was not the plan to come out with a free to play version in fucking October. Right. Like, you know, they have like all these plans of creating the next like sequel to Overwatch 2 that would out offset the old one. But now it's a free to play game that 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 no one's going to care about because there's too many games out there that competing for the same audience. Right. You have Valorant. You have like uh, Apex. You're going to have the best, biggest, biggest and best Call of Duty ever, probably this year. Right. Like exactly where does this fit in? You know, like no one cares. And it's not worth more than free. Right, because they're, 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 this is not this is a this is an expansion at best, right? Um, and I don't know. I think this is a little bit sad. Right, <laughs> they're just like throwing this out there, right? So we'll see. All right, moving on. Uh, Frost Giant Studios has unveiled their social real-time strategy game Stormgate. 
Um, so this is an ex-Blizzard team, ex-Warcraft 3, StarCraft 2 designers. Um, and th they've announced this real-time strategy game. Um, the quotes here, <laughs> our vision is to create a social experience that breaks down the barriers that have kept people away to welcome back players who have been waiting for the next great real-time strategy game and to prove that real-time strategy and genre can thrive once again. Um, Stormgate is coming to Windows PC and Steam and will be free to play. So they're talking about story-driven campaign missions, and those will be playable with Solo and a Friend, and integrated esports, 1v1 ranked matches, competitive ladder, and team-based 3v3. Um, so sounds really like in the exact same lane as StarCraft, um, which will be an uphill metal, right? Like all the indicators that I've seen is that real-time strategy space, all that audience has really moved over to MOBA, trading card games, auto chess, with really no signs of players coming back. There's been like some premium efforts in the single A tier, but just have not really shown amazing interest coming back to real-time strategy. Um, so these guys are going head to head against MOBA, TCG, and Auto Chess um, with with a free to play product. So it's really going to be coming down to that retention. Uh, also, I don't really know what social means in this context, and I guess I'm I'm always going to be cynical because I always like in every single developer pitch I hear social kind of just sprinkled into the deck, which really just means like we'll have multiplayer, like we'll have leaderboards in a chat. I don't know. I just feel like social is always this word that gets thrown around to to make executives happy when it actually is a meaningless word. But that's my cynical. Eric, what do you think? Uh, real real time strategy going to take over the world now? I I, I don't. Is this really a free to play game? Oh wow. Well, I'm assuming the PvP mode will be free to play. Hopefully, the campaign isn't free to play. I don't know. That's. I'll reserve judgment on this. I mean, I just, I, I think I agree with you is that they, um, the audience has moved to MOBAs. And so like, uh, I think it's just a niche product, but I think there's a super core contingent that love these type of games. And I'm sure these guys make a really good one. Um, but it's just not, yeah, not, not this that. would be the studio that I would like, this is the, be the studio that I partner with yeah, to go I, after real time strategy. Right. I, just how big of an opportunity is real time strategy. It, see, it, it seems very small yeah. and that's why that's why blizzard no longer makes starcraft games and they got rid of that team right and i mean i don't know i just i just feel i feel like consumers they don't have the attention span for that anymore right <laughs> excited about nfts in the metaverse ready to be part of the future of gaming recurs looking for talented producers product managers game designers economy designers and engineers recurs building branded nft collectibles and games with top ip including college sports, Paramount, Star Trek, Nickelodeon, Sanrio, and more, using its best-in-the-industry technology platform. Recur's platform streamlines the NFT collecting experience. No crypto or third-party wallets required. Simply buy an NFT with your credit card or Apple Pay. And Recur's robust gamification system creates infinite collecting and gameplay possibilities from which to make compelling play and earn experiences. Recur is backed by some of the biggest names in crypto and NFTs, including billionaire Stephen Cohn, Gary Vee, and Gemini, among others. Join us now and get ready to ride a rocket ship. Let's fucking go. Like, you know what I mean? Like, what was the, what was the heyday of RTS that was like Age of Empires, Warcraft 3, uh, you know, you had Command and Conquer. Command, yeah, Red, yeah, Red Command and yeah, Conquer. Right. And, and, and Red Alert. And then, then Crest came in and ruined it by yeah, fire. We ruined it. We fired <laughs> Westwood back in the day. But, but like, I know a lot of those, a lot of those guys, they were at, um, 
people fun. Right. And they like kind of com- like the guys that made uh, what was the name of the company that got acquired by Microsoft that made AOE uh, was do you remember Chris? Ensemble. Yeah. So a lot of the ensemble oh, right, right. people moved to PeopleSoft and they got into mobile. I feel like the world has just kind of moved on. It's almost like a relic. And it's like there's probably like some nostalgia value um, for like a re- one really awesome uh, RTS game that's like redolent of Warcraft 3. But I don't know that you're not going to bring that category back. People don't have the attention span anymore. Like those games were like an hour long and it was like, you're like this far from the screen, like triple clicking and using the keyboard and stuff. No one wants to do that anymore. Like even a MOBA, it's not that, um, I mean, you're paying attention and stuff, but the games move pretty quick for the most part. And there's not that much like tactile uh, obligation, right? I, I don't know. I just feel like the world's moved on. Yeah, it's like not managing an economy while you're micromanaging. Your well, yeah, exactly. And, and it's, but that happens in media, right? You remember police academy movies? Those were like, they dominated society. And then you had all of the stuff, like um, all of those, like, like just over the top, goofy movies, right? There was a whole 10 year period where that was like the dominant form of comedy, right? And then remember rom-coms, Matthew McConaughey, like why did McConaughey move on? There's the McConaissance. It's just wor- the world changes, culture changes. People don't want to, they don't want to consume that kind of content anymore. There's no police academy movie coming or these goofy movies. Remember there was the one about like the MLB uh, you know, there was like the, they they would just do like the Weird Al type type stuff where they did the parodies. Like that doesn't the scary movie, and then they had the the parody of scary movie. Like th- that doesn't happen anymore because the world moved on. We don't want that stuff. Yeah. It's the same it, with RTS. Yeah, even Adam Sandler's <laughs> making a serious like basketball right. movie. Exactly, right? Adam Sandler's <laughs> not even Happy Gilmore anymore. He's moved on. Yes, yeah, so you've got the Starcraft. Starcraft is Police Academy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> the Naked Gun series. Naked yeah. Gun. Okay. Yeah. Or was it Ernest? Ernest. Uh, exactly. <laughs> we don't make those kind of movies anymore. No one wants to see it. Society's moved on. Culture's moved on. RTS is the same thing. Like, yeah, maybe there's a nostalgia title that can make some money, but you're not bringing that category back. Um, next news. Starfield. Um, official gameplay reveal um, at the Xbox showcase. Um, was great to see, right? Like it, it looks like it's No Man's Sky and Fallout combined. Um, did did you watch the video, Eric? Did you get a chance to look? Sorry, with Starfield. Yeah. No, I did not actually. Yeah, watch the video while I talk about it. Yeah. I guess. Um, like it, it's a shooter. Um, like obviously an RPG first, open world RPG first. Um, but the core gameplay has shooting, so it's very it seems very similar to Fallout Four. Um, to be honest, like it, it even don't worry, it has the lock picking minigame from oh, no. <laughs> like a modern take on uh, or futuristic take on lock picking, uh, because every single one of these Bethesda games has to have that, right? Um, other interesting features is that it has things like ship construction, uh, looks like home base building. Um, so it just looks like there's, there's, they're just adding to what they did with Fallout 4. Uh, with some new progression elements on top of obviously the tremendous focus on story, characters, narrative, uh, branching narrative, that kind of thing. Um, mentioned in the brief that there would be thousands of planets to explore. Um, and from most of the feedback that I'm seeing, it, it's just, I think most players are just hopeful that it's less say proc gen, like No Man's Sky was, that the thousandth planet is not just a recolor of the 900th. Um, but still that they have enough of those high quality planets in between there. And I'm, I'm assuming they do. This is Bethesda. Yeah. I'm, I'm as bullish as I can be. This game is going to be huge, but it, 
Some people are saying it seems a little bit. But it's sci-fi, Eric. What are you talking about? No, no, no. There, there are exceptions to every rule. Um, and anything that Bethesda does is an exception. <laughs> so not CD, <laughs> not CD Projekt. Not CD Projekt, but Bethesda. Dude, I'll give the benefit of the doubt, right? Um, I think this game looks cool. But they said, some people are saying that it seems a little bit too ambitious in terms of how big it is. And maybe they're over overselling it. But I don't know. I, if if I, I would just cut the number of planets, right? Like, okay. don't do a thousand. <laughs> nobody's gonna do nobody's gonna visit a thousand 500 is reasonable a thousand but do you remember the a first mass effect where like oh my god there's so many planets to explore and so many of them was just like you running around with your little car and being like yeah, right. what am i doing here mining this planet yeah. um anyways last of us part two uh so they had an announcement um that the multiplayer component that was supposed to be in last of us part two is now launching as a standalone game um that instead of kind of launching that multiplayer mode alongside or as a side mode, they invested in it and are now releasing it. Um, the details were pretty scarce in the interview, but it looks like it's some sort of third person shooter in the world of last of us. All they really showed was kind of concept art, but I'm going to speculate because I think that's a pretty good bet. Um, so maybe it's a survival shooter. Maybe it's an extraction shooter like Tarkov. Maybe it's a PVPVE thing like a cycle or a hunt. Um, just hopefully it's not team deathmatch. Hopefully it's not battle Royale. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's not, but hopefully not. Uh, overall, I'm pretty happy with this change. I think having these kind of like side multiplayer modes in single player premium feels so like 2008 premium games, I guess, where they kind of threw these in and it was it's such a waste of time. I always feel so bad for the devs that kind of had to launch with these awkward multiplayer side modes just to tick a box at a green light. Like I remember Last of Us, even Uncharted had these things, right? And it's what you'd expect, maybe like a flash of interest at launch, but not enough people played it. And because it was premium and it was a side mode, matchmaking declined and it was gone, right? There's only really been one case that I've heard of that these side modes actually did anything. And that was weirdly enough Mass Effect 3. They kind of snuck in a little pay to win multiplayer yeah, that, hard mode yeah. on the side that supposedly actually had like a little niche of players. It did and well. Throw up some revenue. Yeah, it did well. Yeah. It's like the one exception. Um, but still, like lots of challenges for them to say, okay, let's rip out this one component and build a live service shooter, as we mentioned with Overwatch, right? But now it's Sony. Sony has never operated a live service shooter. Um, it's going to be very tricky to get that retention right especially for a studio, Naughty Dog, that has literally never done this before. So even if retention is there, will Sony and Naughty Dog be prepared to support this like a live service shoot? That's the big risk. And I'm sure Sony is itching to bring in those Bungie De Destiny consultants as soon as uh, that acquisition comes through. I, I, I'm actually, I think this is actually a good sign though. Like, you know, I mean, I, I might be wrong on this. If they... This is like more of an experiment, but if they can actually try to execute on this and, and learn and build and leverage their Destiny counterparts or whatever, Bungie counterparts, I don't know. It's kind of interesting. We'll see. Way better than launching it as a side mode. Um, yes. And there's there's risks here, but obviously this is the direction they got to go. Yeah. Like they got to train Naughty Dog somehow. Yeah. May as well do it this way. Uh, next one. Diablo Immortals. So Diablo Immortals is tracking well from my perspective. Um, so last week I I kind of pointed out a lot of the issues that I saw with the the design and the monetization. Um, obviously, data speaks stronger than than opinion. So I was wrong. It's doing better than I expected. 
Um, and revenue right now looks like it's stabilizing rather than dropping. And the revenue per install is growing, albeit a bit slow. So right now, RPI has reached $2 in the U.S. and has passed 12 million installs, 20 million in revenue. Um, it looks like the RPI trend will go beyond uh, kind of typical action RPGs. So it looks like this will trend towards a higher cap. This is not a Genshin Impact, but still a lot higher than, than I would have expected. Um, I've kind of queried a whole bunch of people that I respect around CCRPG design, and literally everyone that I've talked to from mobile has said, I expect this thing to drop. And it's just due to the how off the pattern it is for CCRPGs, how much it indexes to top tier spend, how that kind of like lower tier, mid tier spender value is not there, how lightweight their end game is in terms of repeatable activities. So, but the thing is, this is data, right? So far, signs are good. So unless revenue starts dropping in the next few weeks, this game is probably on more solid ground and, and they've got a, a basis where they can add a lot of those missing gaps and of course, execute on live content cadence. So this bodes well, especially for an Asian launch for Diablo Immortals, which I think is of course inevitable. Um, I think this could be just another wild rift where the West is actually more like a soft launch and the Chinese launch is actually where the majority of the revenue will come. No, and I think, uh, well, 25% of the revenue is being driven by South Korea. <laughs> and then Japan is like 9%. Yeah. So if you take those out, like it, it fits a better kind of normal profile for these kind of games. But it's going to be a shark fin in the West. And and maybe in the East, like some of these elder game loops will have more you know, stability, potentially. If, if we treat this like a soft launch, right? Like they... They take a year and actually build out a, more modes in the end game. They figure out how to go even deeper. Right. Um, then by the Chinese launch, they, they're yeah, they're going to make footing. They could make gajillions in China, but I do expect this to die. Right? I mean, like the the shark fin thing. But. Literally everyone that I talked to in mobile yeah. has said the same thing, and that's my my intuition as well. Given, I think the the struggles in the end game, but I, I can't argue with the data so far. Yeah. It's doing better than I expected. Okay. Um, so I've got one trigger for Cress. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know if you read this article. I, uh, this validates. Apple C <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> okay, so the Eric Cress trigger of the week. Apple CEO Tim Cook has penned a letter calling on U.S. lawmakers to pass federal privacy law as soon as possible. Uh, Tim Cook penned a letter to lawmakers today calling for the passage of new federal privacy legislation, uh, who has been meeting with lawmakers in Washington, D.C. this week, and, send, and Apple stands by, ready to assist in the process in the days ahead, Eric. What have I been talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Last year, I've been spent screaming at the top of my lungs with all my clients on this podcast a million times, right? Apple does not give a shit about the ecosystem for publishers. They care about privacy. This is their marketing. This is the, their entire marketing strategy for their products is privacy, right? And the eight people that actually run Apple and the rest of them, they're just running around with their heads cut off, right? I mean, it's privacy is strategy at all costs, right? Regardless of outcomes for their partners or the, anybody that's built their platform over the fucking last two decades, right? It's just about privacy. And so... And it, it's working and it works for Apple. They're differentiating their products. And, you know, <laughs> this is what I've been talking about, right? Why is he writing letters to the government? <laughs> you know, why, why is that something relevant for a CEO of, of, of Apple to do? 
It's because he wants these privacy things put out so that he can say that he has the most private platform on the planet, right? Oh, yeah, yeah I, I can't, this is unbelievable. Unbelievable. I was like screaming at my clients this week about this. It's like, it doesn't matter. Fucking Apple oven, iron source unit, they could give a fuck about you guys. Like, as long, fingerprinting, gone, right? You know, anyway, whatever. What? But, yeah, go ahead. I know, anyway, having said that, Based upon feedback that I heard from Mr. Eric and, and his buddy on a mobile dev memo, the changes to SCAD are actually pretty good, right? So like the tail wagging the dog of these engineers at Apple that built SCAD to specifications that who knows what the fuck they were thinking that first, first time around, they seem to be fixing some of it, right? And, and you know, I, I listened to that podcast that you guys did, you know, Alec, Alex, Alex is his name, made a great point, right? Would you say, did that, you just say the, Alex? It's a- <laughs> I said Alex. You said Alex. <laughs> no, I said Alex. All right. Did I, okay. Alex? I misheard. I misheard. I thought you said okay. Alex. So, so what, what he said, and this is what I was trying to remember this. It was, anyway, what, he, what Alex said that made a lot of sense to me was that SCAD was originally designed, felt like it was designed by lawyers as opposed to UA engineers, right? And, and that, that kind of makes sense, right? Because that's the company's strategy. They're being told and given a parameters of how they want this privacy to be done. But it's from lawyers and, and executives that don't know anything about UA or any of these type of systems that Eric and Alex were geeking out about, right? But they are looking like they're actually making these changes based on feedback from publishers to make SCAD more useful, which is, is a good, it's, I mean, it's good. Like, it's, it's good that they're actually working towards that. But the overarching theme that has been around for the last year and a half is the fact that they are going after privacy at all costs, right? And everyone else be damned. And and that is clear from what they talked about the the sorry what they talked about uh, blocking uh, uh, IP tracking, and then now with this nonsense letter to the government about privacy laws. <laughs> Come on. Anyway, so good luck out there. Uh, particularly Unity and App Love and an Iron Source, so we'll see. So, so, the, so the thing is, like on the, the same week that he wrote that letter, yesterday the German government said they're investigating ATT on competitive grounds, and the UK's Competition and Markets Authority, which is the, the same competition uh, authority um, or the UK equivalent, published the final version of its uh, mobile platforms ecosystem report where they have a whole appendix dedicated to ATT. They actually uh, expanded it to include the Google stuff. Uh, the draft edition was just ATT, though, and, and this new, the final edition includes Google. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's regulators looking at this stuff, right? And my, you know, the cynical take on the stuff they announced at WWDC, the expansion of SK Ad Network, is that they were getting inquiries and scrutiny from regulators, and they realized, okay, we've actually got to make this stuff functional. The uh, generous take is like, yeah, well, they got a lot of feedback from the ecosystem and they adapted. But the problem is, to Alex's point, you know, the the advertising ecosystem, the advertising uh, uh, category didn't get a seat at the table from the beginning. No, they- and there was no input allowed. And they made something that was totally dysfunctional in SK Ad Network. Right. And the whole point is they fucking hate advertising. And they don't particularly yeah. like games either. Right. Yeah. Right. 
It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a ne necessary evil. evil. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's the same thing as Facebook. Facebook loved games because it was super viral and added gajillions of people to their network. But as soon as their, their use case was gone, they said, fuck off. Right. And they basically destroyed the entire ecosystem overnight almost. Yeah. Except for Zynga for like six months. Right. So like, it's it, it's all the same idea, but they're all working on their best interests, right? And so now, yeah, now they get some of the band hammer from the government, so they want to act like they're like um, acting on the best behalf of the of publisher. I'm right. uh, sorry, of 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 the consumer with this privacy bullshit, right? But no one wanted privacy. Like privacy, it, it was almost invented. Yeah, you know. <laughs> well, here's the thing: like anytime a company starts championing some nebulous social cause, they're bamboozling you. <laughs> They're using that exactly. as a Trojan horse to enact some sort of uh, commercial advantage. That's it. Companies cannot fundamentally care about social issues. It's a ruse. It's fake. It's just pretend. It's dress up to try to sneak in some sort of commercial benefit. That's it. Companies are not people, right? Like this idea that a company genuinely, the people really, the people at this company genuinely care about the social cause, it's impossible. Especially, I mean, maybe like a family-owned company or something, but not a company like Apple with hundreds of thousands of employees. It's impossible, right? There's always the profit motive. That has to be the lens that you look at any of this stuff from. Um, yes. Okay. I want to, like, so this is a pet peeve of mine. Uh, these types of articles. So I'm covering an article. The title is How to Spend 100K, House Deposit or Max Out Your Diablo Immortal Character. It was published by Kotaku. Um, this actually isn't the article I wanted to cover. There was another one that was more egregious. The Kotaku article, the one I'm covering, is kind of fair, uh, I think. But th there was another one that was just totally disingenuous. But basically, <laughs> I'll just cover the idea of an article like this, right? So what happens is, um, you know, a journalist uh, gets... Uh, clued into the idea that there's some, uh, you know, there's there's a new game out and uh, maybe the, the the monetization is aggressive or whatever. And then they just take a look at, you know, basically the App Store page um, and they just calculate if you added up all these IAPs, what would be like the max cost or whatever. And like they use some kind of formula or whatever. And, and, and the idea here is that, yes, it's possible that you potentially could spend 100K in Diablo Immortal. Or you could. No one's going to, or maybe a handful of people are, right? They're not going to do it, um, you know, uh, they're, they're not going to do it uh, without sort of being fully aware of what they're spending, right? It's not like a subscription that just runs in the background and charges them every month that they forget about. Like, you know, you hear about these people that are still subscribed to AOL and still paying like, you know, 10 bucks a month, right? Like, because they just get auto-charged on their credit card. That's not how this works. You know, people are fully cognizant of what they're spending. You know, the fact that you can possibly spend 100K in Diablo Immortal does not mean that, like, the average user is going to spend, or, like, the average amount spent in Diablo Immortal is going to... This is just misleading clickbait, right? You know, the, the, the thing that these articles never seem to acknowledge is that the vast, vast, vast majority, maybe 95% or more, of people that play Diablo Immortal will never spend a single cent, right? And maybe they'll play for a really long time and get a lot of value out of that for free. Right. And I think you have to kind of look at that dimension to these free to play economies if you're going to pass any sort of judgment about what the sort of upper limit is on what you could potentially theoretically spend. Right. Now, I do know that there's there are, you know, sort of very core games that have people that spend 100K in them. Right. And or more. Right. And, and that happens. It's a phenomenon. 
Um, but, you know, I've met some of these people personally, and, like, I asked them, why do you spend so much money in this game? And a lot of times it's like, well, I play this with my high school buddies, and this is, our, this is like fantasy football for us. Or this is like, uh, instead of going on, like, a yearly ski trip with the boys, we, we, we have a guild. Um, and this, this amount, this LTV that they've sort of contributed is, is accrued over the course of, like, five years or whatever, and they get a lot of value out of it. That's their way of connecting with their friends or whatever. Now, I'm not saying that's every case, and I'm not saying that there aren't people that have been like bamboozled in some way or they've, whatever, they've spent money that they didn't realize they were spending. I'm sure that happens. But, you know, there's a very clear path to getting refunded, right, by Apple and Google with these games. Like, I think if people spent money that they didn't realize they spent, uh, they could get that money back. I think the people that pay the 100 k they're just very heavily invested in these games. And a lot of times... They have the money to spend. It's just a whatever. It's it's a hobby. It's 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 a frivolous expense to you, but it might be really valuable to them. And maybe that's like a very tiny amount of their sort of like disposable fund income that month. You just can't pass judgment based on the total maximum amount that you could theoretically spend in a free-to-play game without realizing that the vast majority, 95% plus, don't spend a single cent. Right? I think it's just a really unfair way of examining these games. Now, I don't this article in particular was more fair about it. But the one that I saw was kind of making these rounds on Twitter and everyone was clutching their pearls. But, you know, these kind of viral stories don't last that long. Um, and, and I don't think anybody was necessarily influenced by this at this stage. But I always just hate seeing these articles get uncritically shared um, and have, you know, the free-to-play blamed as some sort of like extractive mechanism, whereas actually it provides free entertainment to the vast majority of the people that play these games. I know Eric, you've had you've got a kind of different view oh, on this kind of stuff, right? Oh yeah, I, I don't even want to. I don't even want to go on this one. I I, I I I think look, you're taking a beloved franchise and you're putting in you know dirty free to play mechanics and 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 crazy payment schemes that require insane amounts of investment in order to be you know competitive at the highest level. Like I I mean I I, I understand where they're coming from, but the hyperbolic like bullshit that they talk about with these things, you know, with with Kotaku is like obvious. I mean, that's what they are. That's all they know how to do, right? But um, but yeah, this is this is clickbait, and yeah, I mean, and, and this is a longer. There's a, there's a whole economy. There's a whole thing around people kind of sharing these types of articles around, yeah. Yeah. and it's just like there's going to be another headline in a couple of weeks, and they're going to move on to that one. Yeah. Um, um, but one correction I'd make on on Eric, you, you mentioned like just going to the App Store page and just kind of like adding up the IEPs. Um, usually they're a little bit more sophisticated than that. And I'm talking to somebody who's actually been a target of one of these things. Right. Is that they, like in this case, like you look at the Reddit post that a lot of this kind of based on is that they, they look at the actual systems, they look at drop rates, like percentage that these gems would actually hit. And then they produce like a theoretical maximum right. of like, okay, so with, within a gotcha system, how many drops would you you need on average in order to have all of the gems all at maximum level, right? And, you know, as an economy designer, you would typically do this uh, when you're trying to figure out the, the depth of your systems in comparisons to others, right? Um, so it's, it's not crazy. The, the weird thing that they always do is that they kind of anchor it around the lowest price point. It's as if somebody who would spend $100,000 would buy the dollar pack right. $100,000. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Which is like never happened as well, assuming that they literally did nothing in engagement, right? right? Like they didn't earn anything, which barely ever happens too, right? You Most most of the time, they're going to be engaging through the system and this is going to get them over the hump. They're not going to spend 100K. They're gonna, they might be spending, you know, 10 bucks, 100 bucks, 1,000 right. bucks. 
um, to get through that to that next tier. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's a, a lot of the logic that they use to get up to that number is very, very. Small. You're right. So I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to do the same thing that I'm accusing them of and be like overly reductive. You're right. They they actually build like a model of the game, and they go through it and they sort of determine. Like in this particular case, there's a there's a video right now. Watch the video. And it's like this long video, and he's deconstructing gameplay. And he talks about okay, like well, if you didn't want to spend the money to fully upgrade this character and fully upgrade across every single dimension, right? So in a way that no player would probably do. But if you didn't want to, sp if you didn't want to spend the money to do this, and it would cost 100k to do it, then you'd have to spend 10 years grinding. Well, of, of course, neither of those things is going to happen. That's not like a realistic use case, right? And the thing is, like, I, I think what most people don't realize is that when you when you're building a game, a lot of times the whole game economy is sometimes run from like an Excel spreadsheet. You might upload the spreadsheet to like the server, and that's actually what's powering the game. And you want to change, you know, you want to tweak the economy, you want to tweak um, any sort of setting in the game. You tweak the spreadsheet, you re-upload it, right? And these spreadsheets are very complex and there's vast amounts of, of optionality, right? So there's different upgrade trees, there's different like character progression trees, all these things are part of the game economy, essentially. And like, yeah, if you had that and you sort of just maxed out everything across the board, yes, you'd get to 100K. No player's ever gonna do that. There's no expectation that anyone's gonna do that. It's just misleading to kind of even throw that number out there because the number is kind of irrelevant, right? Well, okay. so. This is one of those things where there's no truth, in my view, anyway, is that I could argue both sides of this thing pretty much to the death and still be wrong, right? Or, or one side be wrong and not the other. I mean, the way these games are designed are meant to be optimized around total player spend, right? Like, what is max spend for any game? That could basically, you can calculate LTV based on that, and that's how people design games, right? So, so it is egregious in terms of their ability to extract money from the high paying customers because without that you can't hit L high LTVs, right? I, and then on the flip yeah, side. But, but the, the economics of Diablo Immortals was that they went to the player friendliest system possible for the first 20 plus hours, right? right? That really you can play that whole entire thing for free. So they kind of opted into a system that is much lower conversion. Early. Which requires higher spend, right? Like if you look at Supercell games, what I've found is that their spend depth at launch is pretty low. They add to it, obviously, with time, with live content, um, but they're pushing much higher for conversion. And I think like the the better feeling in our stomachs is when we can get to a point where we have higher conversion and we don't need as much spend depth. But I think the economics of free-to-play, kind of the physics of free-to-play, right. I've, I've always pointed uh, so, that spend depth is necessary. Yeah, 100%. And that, that's my point. I, I, I could argue both ways, like that it's predatory behavior, predatory design. And then on the other side, you're giving away something for free, right? So, but that's just the nature of the business, right? And so like, I'm not, I, I don't want to go down too deep. So what's my point? My point is, is like, when, to be balanced, I think I agree with Eric's original point is that Kotaku needs to be a little bit balanced and saying like, look, this only corresponds like three or 4% of the overall audience that's going to spend anywhere near this kind of money, right? Or, or spend money at all, right? right? So like 95% of these people are going to play the first 20 hours for fucking nothing. Yeah. It's like fuck off, right? That's yeah. fine, right? So stop it. <laughs> yeah, stop no, I don't know I about do, it. I, I I do love bringing these up because I feel like it's important to push back every single time one of these articles gets floated because I think it's it's important to not let the narrative be, you know, hey consumers, all of these games are just trying to trick you into spending money, and you're going to end up having to spend a lot of money to play them, and it's really just uh, 
you know, this guy, this clever guys that it's free. Actually, no, it's going to be very, very expensive. And no, it's not. You're probably not going to, you know, flip a coin or whatever. You got a, you got a hundred sided die. Only if you land on one side of that die, are you going to spend anything? Right. And like, you know what I mean? Like, so it's, you know, to, to almost anyone is not going to spend any money on this. That, and 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 you get to try it for free. You get to decide if you like it. And I don't even like the idea of like this this concept of like extracting money. It's not like an an ore deposit that these game developers are like mining for cash. It's they, like they, no, come they, on, no, dude. they get they, them. They like to spend the money. They like it. They enjoy it. They're getting value. No. I, 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 it's like a timeshare. So I, I, I actually <laughs> go on this great vacation, and the whole time they're trying to. Oh, no, come values. on, no. <laughs> I, I don't want to. I, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole, but I, I almost fundamentally disagree with you in terms of how much design attention is in terms of extracting as much value as possible from a customer. It's community. But let's go to. Let's go to. Let's move on to a lighter topic. Yes. Saudi Arabia. Yes, Saudi Arabia is. <laughs> <laughs> So Saudi Arabia announced a billion dollar investment in Embracer Group. And it sounds, it is as bad as it sounds, honestly. Like actually, if you look into it a little bit, but um, <laughs> they're basically, the stake is being brought, bought by uh, Saudi Arabia's Savvy Gaming Group, which is basically a subsidiary of their public investment fund, which is basically government money that they're trying to invest. And this is all led by this, uh, the Crown Prince Mohammed uh, bin Salam, who's uh, Salman, sorry, um, who's, working feverishly to reinvigorate the uh, Saudi economy, I suppose. Um, Embracer will be required to build a regional hub, which is generally a very a condition for these type of things. Uh, so build a, a regional hub in Saudi, which basically means they have a place uh, where they actually hire Saudis and others to work within the kingdom, okay? Um, and this will be for partnerships, you know, acquisitions or operations, et cetera. Um, the same fund acquired a 5% stake in Nintendo, uh, Nexon, and Capcom. Um, and they also acquired, I'm not really too sure about this, but they acquired SNK into 2021, which uh, makes uh, Dungeon Fighter, right? Something like that. Anyway, um, so <laughs> I have a lot of angles on this that I, I don't want to go too deep in. But first, a little known fact, I lived in Saudi Arabia was growing up. So I was there from eighth, fifth grade to eighth grade. I also went back in 2000. Um, with a friend of mine who's from Saudi, who uh, brought me in to help start a business out in, in Jeddah. Um, so I am very relatively familiar with the kingdom um, and the culture of, of that region to some degree. Of course, it's been a long, long time. But in my experience, things don't change too fast over in those neck of the woods. Now, I have been told by people that are there now that things are changing with Prince Mohammed. So I may be a little bit um, out of my over my skis on this, but I will uh, do my best. Um, first of all, there's two huge issues here with this investment, just from my perspective, is that um, I don't know how much I personally care, but you know, Saudi is a pretty fucking brutal regime, right? They still do beheadings. They still cut off hands for people that steal in the square. Like this still goes on, right? And obviously, uh, you know, anti-woman, uh, definitely anti-minority. They're very uh, prejudiced against minorities in their country. Um, they're just pretty brutal for uh, human rights in general. So taking an investment from these from Saudis is, is questionable for a lot of people, I think. Um, not that I, I'm not really too, that doesn't bother me as much, maybe. I don't know. But um, so what, but from an investment perspective, what they're trying to do is build revenues outside of their oil economy, 
right? So they've been trying to make these investments for decades. I mean, dec- not even decades, like, like 50 years, you know, since oil was discovered in the 50s, right? They've been trying to do this kind of thing. And that's why I was there to begin with, because, you know, Bechtel was building a city in the West Coast to do, you know, other things besides oil, right? But anyway, um, but they are doing a lot more investments in, in, in gaming recently, right? That's one of their priorities because gaming has become very popular, particularly esports. And, and, and again, their primary goal is to get multinational companies to basically come to Saudi and, and, and have offices in Saudi and employ Saudis and employ others within Saudi, right? That was the whole point, to build industry outside of oil. Um, but uh, <laughs> so I guess what, what bugs me here is that why is Embracer going after this kind of money <laughs> at this stage, right? So, and this was a direct raise and it was actually much to the chagrin of existing investors, right? Is that they basically raised the money directly. So they spent, they got that money and it's in their coffers to do additional acquisitions. Um, normally, the, the, like the rest of the stakes that they had were likely bought in the public market so that, that it doesn't like give cash directly to the company. Um, so basically the CEO of Embracer had to actually release a statement <laughs> so that he could defend this proposition, right? And so... He said that he was basically the article, basically, his letter basically said that Saudi will have no influence on operation. You know, Embracer is built on the principles of freedom, inclusion and humanity and openness. Right. And uh, which is ironic because that's certainly not the way Saudi was built. But anyway, the uh, they also mentioned uh, the region's game popularity. They have this guy named Brian Ward, who's not been out there for six months investigating the scene. And and the most ridiculous statement in this in this release was we are committed to equality, a diverse work environment that treats employees with dignity and cultivating an atmosphere focused on the improving the world around us. And that all subsidiaries would abide by these rules and that uh, Brian and his team would make sure that these rules apply to Saudi Arabia. Uh, No, no, the same rules do not apply to Saudi Arabia. I'm sorry, wrong answer. That doesn't even make sense because they do not abide by the same type of uh, employment laws or and whatever, anything laws that we do. So um, so my fundamental take on this is that this is sketchy money. At, at its best, it's sketchy, right? Or dirty money or even dark money. I guess it's not dark money because everyone knows about it, but it's far from clean, right? This is... Uh, Basically, another calculated move by Embracer to get more capital to further grow Embracer inorganically. Um, this is like when other sources of funds kind of dry up. This is like, you know, last resort type stuff right? <laughs> where, where you take this money and, and, and hope the shareholders will, you know, allow it. Um, but again, it continues to act. It allows them to continue their acquisition spree. Um, I think eventually this organization will likely collapse upon itself because it's so it's gonna be so big because it's gonna be really 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 challenging to continue to deliver organic growth where they deliver high quality games but they may be able to take advantage in the short term of, of the console cycles they have a game coming out finally uh after like 20 years in development uh saints row is coming in august um but we shall see but uh but no this is not this is not sexy money <laughs> to uh, be uh, be uh, raising for acquisitions, in my opinion. Uh, any thoughts? How much of this do you think they actually have to spend on setting up operations in Saudi? 
Oh, nothing. acquiring studios. No, I, the way I understand it from talking to a bunch of people is that they'll have like, you know, like an office of 20 to 30 or people or something like that, which is nothing. A billion dollars, a lot of money, you know? Of course. Yeah. And it's, you know, they get an 8% uh, share in the, in the company. Um, and they also, the letter basically suggested that they're not going to be on the board. They're not going to be making decisions at the company level. I believe that. But, um, yeah. But the notion that they're going to have the same equal rights and, and privileges and abide by the same rules in Saudi that they do in the rest of their organization is preposterous. You know, um, it's just a different world, part of the world. Uh, so that's all PR. Um, besides that, like besides the fact that it's dirty money um, with one billion in in their bank account now. And now with the market the way that it is, does it mean that they can go out and acquire some interesting assets that could be underpriced now, at least relative to what it was a year or two ago? I, yeah, it's possible. It's possible. Possible. It's better time or probably, you know, get better deals potentially, but it doesn't solve their fundamental problem um, that, uh, a collection of studios that doesn't have any management layer is going to be really tough to manage and to grow yeah. organically. Yeah. So that's the fundamental problem that they have. And still fronts still dealing with that. And they're, they actually have some of the layers. These guys do not. So anyway, that's sorry to, uh, on a sour note. <laughs> I just gotta, How do we got to call it out. Yeah. I mean, the fact uh, that he's writing a letter three days later, apologizing. Because he had to. I mean, because you to. have to, right? Because it's just yeah. so bad, right? It's so bad. Anyway. All right. Hey, have a good week. Uh, stay out of trouble. Don't do anything I wouldn't do. And uh, we'll see. Oh, I am out next week. So you will not have my company next week. I'm uh, in Boulder. Cool. All right. See you. <laughs>